This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. This is how we do This is how we do hedge funds. Did I do it right? I don't know. Uh, I'm such a girl from New Jersey. Cringe. All right. Cringe, cringe, cringe. All right. The average decline last year for hedge funds, check it out, everybody, it was 6.7%, but that masks that there were some that did much worse and some that did a lot better. Uh, Let's talk about some of the outperformers, D.E. Shaw, Brevin Howard's main hedge fund. Let's get into a hedge fund wrap-up. Is that it? This is how we do it. <laughs> Emma Parmar is in the house. She covers hedge funds for us here at Bloomberg. News. I think you're making it worse. Oh, my God. They're like, could you just stop? Could you just stop now? You sound like my teenage daughter. She is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Nice to have you here. So much fun. It's interesting because Jason and I talked a lot with Peggy Collins last week about some of the uh, bummers when it mm-hmm. came to hedge funds who didn't do so well. But there, were, there was a, a deluge of stories this morning about those that did fairly well. Yes, we're seeing some um, some outliers and, and some actually performing really quite well. Firstly, Bridgewater. They are the world's largest hedge fund. Ray Dalio, right? Ray Dalio's fund. Um, they rose 14.6% last year, nearly 15%, um, which is stellar performance for, um, for their pure alpha fund. Yeah. Um, they run about $160 billion firm-wide, and they, this fund in particular trades a macro strategy across all asset classes. A macro strategy. Isn't that wild? Because we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Was it um, Soros that we talked about, you know, in terms of the macro strategy having a tough time? And the macro wow. strategy, you know, broadly across hedge funds for years has not done well. This was supposed to be their year to make money. They hadn't seen volatility for such a long time. They were expecting it. You know, this could be an example of a fund that uh, made, a, you know, a ton of money off the volatility. And, you know, earlier last year, around October, you know, the the firm had said, one of the co-CIOs had said that the economy was at an inflection point, that it was moving from hot to mediocre. So he was bearish, concerned that um, the tightening monetary policies would produce produce some pressure. Good macro call. Exactly. And um, in June, too, they were fairly bearish. So mm. that seems to have uh, played out quite well for this fund in particular, and they've, d- they've done well. And it's fascinating to look. You know, we, we felt like 2018 in many ways was the year of just hanging it up. You know, we saw so many people, not the least which, you know, Lee Cooperman, you know, saying, you know what, I'm just going to do this as a family office. Others mm-hmm. uh, taking that route. And yet here we have, you know, Alan Howard. Ray Dalio, it's a little bit of a different story because obviously he's he's handed off. D.E. Shaw, another mm-hmm. that had a really big year. I mean, Carol and I were uh, joking about this before we came on air a little bit back at our desk and saying, well, you know, this is kind of what they're supposed to do. This, <laughs> this is, is why people pay them a lot of money. And we spent so much time being like, oh, these poor hedge funds really having a tough time out there. But this is these what they're are the supposed results. to do. Yes, this is what is is how they should be performing. Not all do. Many weren't able to. We've seen sort of a culling of the industry in the past year, as so many have closed down, as you mentioned, some turned to family offices. Um, but yes, D.E. Shaw did very well. Brevin Howard, which they've had a tough go for a very long time. They've seen assets plunge as their performance for years has just not done well. But their fund up 12.3% last year, the best year since the end of the financial crisis for them. Most of those profits came in May. Um, but mm-hmm. 
still something of a, a significant uh, move for that fund after a lot of bad news for them. So I know this is a little inside Bloomberg baseball, Hema, but uh-huh. you have been participating in a program that we have where basically like we send promising rock star reporters onto another desk. You covered retail for mm-hmm. a few months. Coming back onto the investing team, sort of with fresh eyes, like what are you seeing as you talk to your colleagues on that desk about the trends as we go into 19? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what a fascinating experience and I had a, a ball. Um, it was a, a lot of fun and uh, so much to learn about um, on two really fantastic teams. Uh, but I think what's really interesting as we look forward, um, specifically if we're looking at retail from the investor point of view, what and, and how they trade around some of these um, significant retailers like JCPenney. Uh, we saw the stock fall to below a dollar yeah, over the holiday. Uh, it's up since then, but uh, you know, how is that going to play out for that retailer? It's $1.25 as we speak. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> no, it's interesting and on a day when we have Sears right we know right. Eddie yes. Lemper has been trying to like save it and I think mm-hmm. was it the the judge basically came back I think it's the bankruptcy court judge and said I don't think this plan's going to work right you know but and, it yeah and so it really brings light you know the, the future of retail and and the changing evolving nature of that and and I think we'll, we'll be looking for how investors trade around that what opportunities opportunities they see where they see uh the best areas of growth is that the smaller companies the online companies pop-ups like where is uh, how how are you making money off of the back of uh, some of these interesting trends and we're also starting to see I feel like more and more activism Dave Wilson yeah. who was in here just mm-hmm. a few minutes ago mm-hmm. um, brought up the pressure that starboard is putting on Dollar Tree to potentially spin off uh, family dollar that's an area of retail that gets that much more interesting if we do go into a slightly less robust uh, economic environment Carol's heard me say a million times Dollar General was one of the huge outperformers in the last recession, oh you know, owned by KKR, taken public uh, out of that. So there is that your worlds are colliding here. Absolutely. I'm, I think it's a fascinating Venn diagram of overlapping universes. Right. I am just curious, just like 20 seconds to go, uh-huh. in terms of the universe, going back to Hedgehogs for mm-hmm. a second for 2019, is yes. it going to be easier for some of either of these macro strategies? Is it going to be an easier market to call or who knows? Like the volatility oh. that we've seen so far, mm-hmm. good or bad? or I mean, I think that the general consensus is volatility, if it's the right kind of volatility can be great for hedge funds. It really is on their expertise expertise as to how they yeah. play it. I mean, we could continue to see more culling. We could continue to see more closures. I've had some people tell me that they expect to see that, um, that we might not, the worst might not be over. Um, but, you know, there are a ton of hedge funds in this space and some people say that it's much needed. We and just have too much. And as we talked about, right, it was still a record year, I think, in terms of hedge assets. fund assets for 2018. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's gone up every single year. It's not like a dwindling <laughs> industry. Emma Parmar, thank you so much. Thank great, great, great me. to have you in studio. Our hedge fund reporter, she does it all at Bloomberg News. Ooh, ooh ain't got no hope. We definitely do want to talk a little bit about the housing market today. A couple of stories by our Prashant Gopal, who is our U.S. real estate reporter at Bloomberg News. And that includes one that is among the most read on the Bloomberg terminal. It has to do with the housing bear who has made some great calls over the last couple of years. Prashant, good to have you. I know you're joining us from our 1061 studio in Boston. So let's start there with James Stack. Who is he and what is he saying right now? And give us a little bit of his background in terms of his past calls calls when it comes to housing. Yeah. So let me start here. So I, the way this story began, it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just looking around and I, I, was just, I couldn't find anybody who actually had 
uh, any sort of skepticism about the housing market. Everyone seemed to be so bullish. Um, so I decided to go on a hunt for a bear. And um, it was a long search. It took a while. I found some perma bears, like people who were yeah. cons- who for years have been saying the housing market was going to crash. And so that I figured, you know, forget them. And I kept looking and I found this guy, Jim Stack, who had only just recently um, decided that there was a problem. And um, so he basically made the call in, in, my, in the story that ran on January 22nd. The next uh, day, um, well, that was sort of the peak of the homebuilder shares. The next day, next last January, you're talking about last January, yeah. Yeah. And for ten days, homebuilder shares fell ten days in a row after that story ran. And uh, you know, it was homebuilders were down by a third by the end of the year. So (laughs) Jim Stack was really. He really nailed this one. He um, also predicted the housing crash back in 2005, right, just before the prices reached their peak. I mean, right. so another like a smart month, call, yeah. A month or two before they peaked, he, he said that um, you know, the housing market was heading for trouble. And, and I remember what it was like back then. It was the same deal. Everybody was really um, rah-rah about housing. He's, so. got, he's got this housing bubble bellwether barometer. You put this in your story. It's of home builder and mortgage stocks. And back in 05, it was up 80% in a year, and it's a sign that investors once again had gotten too, quote, exuberant. So that Well, this, him- this time it was up 80%, so like oh, uh, okay. a year ago. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and, and this guy is so interesting, too. He's out in Montana, you know, managing a uh, billion dollars, more than a billion dollars uh, for high net worth uh, folks. So who else have you talked about in the interim? Because I do feel like it's taking on a little bit more of a bearish term. It, I have to think it's a little easier to find a bear these days on your bear hunt. <laughs> I don't think I would have to hunt too hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, no, I think he's not alone anymore, right? So he's uh, there. People who are there are a lot of signs right now. I mean, you don't have to look very far. You look at pending home sales down seven point seven percent. They've been they've been down for for several months. Um, and uh, you know, home prices, especially in these in, in the hottest markets, have really softened. You know, I think everyone's looking at Seattle, for example, and San Francisco, and and you know, there's been a big change. Affordability has been the big concern. He kind of called it because he yeah. said he expected mortgage rates. To sort of puncture that hole, right? In, um, in, uh, or at least to, to make it obvious to everybody that affordability was a problem in housing, and that's sort of what happened, right? So rates rates rose, and that's when we saw a slowdown. So I want to ask you about a story you've got also in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week, and that's about veterans and the sort of lending business around that. Tell us a, a little bit about this story, because there's some worries about another uh, sort of term that really scares people when they hear it, subprime uh, lending. Tell us how that plays into the VA world. Well, v- the VA itself so uh, calls these sorts of practices, these cash-out VA uh, loans, um, they, they say it's kind of like, it reminds them of subprime. Yeah. Right? So it's it's a subprime under a new name. Um, and, you know, so what this is, is a lot of lenders out there, you know, more, when mortgage rates rose, it killed off sort of the traditional um, rate term refinance where you, where you get someone to a lower rate. And that was a cash cow for a lot of these lenders. They were just doing it all day, all night. And then um, mortgage rates rose and they needed something to do. Um, A lot of them began to struggle. But uh, cash out refinance sort of 
is helping to fill that void a little bit. So the because the VA is unusual in that it allows borrowers to uh, you know draw up to 100% of the equity in their home. It's actually even more than that. There's a fee that you're supposed to pay the government to protect against risk, and that can be added on. So really, it's like 103.3% of the value of your home, which is pretty risky, um, uh, So especially if you see home prices start to fall. And, and, and the lenders have been very aggressive in, in sort of approaching borrowers. They're, right. You know, people complain about getting bombarded with these letters, um, where they're where they're telling them that this is a benefit they earned and that and you know they better do it before home prices fall. So being encouraged to extract as much as 100% of their home equity. And it's interesting too this this uh, VA loan program. I guess if there is a default, the government, as you note in your story, guarantees 25% of the loan, and the lender has to pay the rest. It's it's an interesting read, and you can also find it in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine on newsstands now, or you can also go to BloombergBusinessWeek.com uh, online for more. Uh, Prashant, um, two great stories worth uh, everybody should just kind of check out. U.S. real estate reporter Prashant Gopal. You know exactly where your focus needs to be, where you need to be. Be cold and act. Don't get hung up on emotion. All right. That was a clip from the show Billions. Anyone who's seen it recognizes the voice of Dr. Wendy Rhodes. She's, of course, one of the main characters on the show. It's Runaway Hit uh, coming back fairly soon on Showtime. I know a lot of people up and down Wall Street and certainly in the hedge fund world looking forward to seeing it. Simone Foxman, she is a wealth reporter, covers hedge funds, follows the money here at Bloomberg. She's watched Billions a bit, met, you know, like a lot of others, it sort of feels like a busman's holiday, right? It feels a little bit like work. It feels very close to home. <laughs> I have to say, covering Wall Street. Well, can I just say, it's kind of sport for us. Anybody who's in business news, we try to, you know, art imitating life. We're like, oh, now is that so-and-so that we know that we report on? Like, we all try to figure out, you know, who the real-life characters are. And that brings us to the subject exactly. of this story. Uh, a therapist who has taken the creators of Billions to court because Dr. Wendy Rhodes, who we just heard from, hits a little too close to home for her. Right. That's right. Uh, Denise Scholl is a performance coach. Um, her clients are, many of them are on Wall Street. They're per, uh, portfolio managers, traders who want to figure out how to um, make more money. Um, she actually uh, had been interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorkin, one of the, um, the the show's creators. He's also you know anchor on CNBC. Um, on well CNBC, business journalist. Well-known business journalist. Um, and so, and then had, you know, uh, been asked by him to talk to um, Maggie Siff, who plays Dr. Wendy Rhodes, um, back in August 2015. And, and, and she did so. But uh, then when the, the uh, series came out, she said, wow, this looks really close to home. This, in fact, sounds a lot like me, except the dominatrix part. Yeah, she was quick to point out, and for those of our listeners who don't uh, watch the show, one of the um, more colorful aspects of the relationship between Dr. Wendy Rhodes and her husband, played by uh, Paul Giamatti, who is the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, is... Uh, 
there uh, after Jason, after school activity. Jason watches this just a little bit. I'm I just do. Saying. It's a great it's show. A very it's a memorable piece really, of their relationship. I have to say, it's a very memorable piece of their relationship. Uh, which well, Denise Schull says was in the first episode. Was in the very first episode. Right, and and Ms. Schull, by the way, points out that she she'd written a book actually, um, in which she, there's a there's a sort of storyline that's part of the book. Um, and she, you know, questions whether, or she actually argues that Billions, you know, took very liberally from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Showtime uh, spokesperson disputed that account. Um, and but but I think what's funny here, it, or ironic, or or maybe awful if you're involved, but it's it's so not surprising that a uh, series about big egos on Wall Street and the people who live in this opulent lifestyle is now potentially going to cause a real life court drama. I still feel mm-hmm. like what's the interesting part of this too, and I remember when Billions hit and we started having some conversations in the newsroom about. Man, so these therapists really do exist, and they do, right? They do, yes. Um, and I, yeah, I think this has surprised a lot of people. It's actually, um, it's actually kind of a, a, a like a well-known thing. Um, Paul Tudor Jones apparently speaks daily to to Tony Robbins, um, who you know is someone that the the show the show's creators have mentioned as as having been you know uh, at least some sort of inspiration for that for that role. Um, but you know, SAC Capital had one um Ms. Scholl is you know obviously one and there are plenty on Wall Street I think the idea is to uh separate your mind from the emotional responses that you have of you know daily life um separate that from trading um so you can make more money it's like an athlete right like you just got to be in your top game no matter what's going on in your world Right. And it has been interesting to see this show really reverberate around Wall Street. And, and one of the ways they have played into that is there are cameos, you yeah. know, now and again. There was an ideas dinner uh, in the last season where a lot of notable people, including, I believe, Mark Lazary, uh, showed up. And, uh, you know, others. Jason watches consult- this a lot. I do watch the show. <laughs> I'm not denying I watch the show. And it is the talk when it comes back. You know, it is the talk of people yeah. um, who do this for a living because they either see themselves literally or they want to see themselves figuratively. It's no different than when the movie Wall Street came out and then the subsequent sequel. But I think the first movie, we were like, okay, you know, who was everybody based on? And and there's lots written about it in media, you know. Right. I mean, one of the people, going back to that, that that folks have pointed out time and again, Tom Hill, who works at Blackstone, definitely has a Gordon Gecko-esque haircut. And, you know, depending on who you ask, he may or may not... Uh, have had a few meetings Carl with Icon Oliver a little Stone. Bit. I've, I've seen, you Absolutely. know, rumored about... Anyway, we're... Well, sorry, let's, we're... let's talk about the center of billions, right? Is, yeah. is you know, maybe this... The, between the U.S. Southern District of New York, um, attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Steve Cohen. Right. Potentially. That's what people have said. I don't know. Right. Exactly. And there are certain elements, you know, the big home bought in the Hamptons, yeah. because as Carol's about to point out, I do watch the show. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Just knows all the details. <laughs> um, what's interesting, though, I do wonder about... Um, how much legal right she has like right when you know people are often paid consultants on creative works right um i just wonder at this point what do you what are you hearing about you know her ability to kind of move forward legally on this i mean i think central to the dispute is going to be how similar the book is um to the actual script yeah um and you know obviously they i'm sure both sides will probably have you know 
plenty of emails that they can see. I, I think that the distinction is also, you know, it's one thing to be asked to come in and offer some guidance about what a, you know, what a, a person who's a performance coach is like and what their mm-hmm. job consists of, um, you know, to, to make the copyright infringement allegation a big is jump, right? a jump. It's a great story. It Fun is. Stuff. It is. Simone Foxman is one of our top reporters here covering the money business and her story today about the therapist seeing herself on TV's billions, except for that one thing. <laughs> She's not a dominatrix. She's not a dominatrix. Just want to get that out there. Absolutely. Full disclosure. That's Simone, good stuff. thank you so much. Not surprisingly, one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg today. And Carol, just taking a look at what else is uh, is gathering a lot of readership, you know, one of which one is uh, is Simone's teammate, Hema uh, Parmar, you know, all the work around, you know, hedge fund performance mm-hmm. and, you know, actual performance, you know, not related to, you know, the show Billions, which I watch. <laughs> I think he's going to let it go. No, there is some, well, I thought that was an interesting conversation because as you said earlier, we were feeling last week like, oh my God, you know, all these hedge funds that are, were doing so badly and so on and so forth. But as we said, I mean, this is, they're supposed to, you know, do better in a down market, maybe not do as, as well in an up market, but that's the whole idea of, you know, paying these guys pretty steep fees right. uh, to figure out the market and do well in it. So. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Bill Stone is Chief Investment Officer at Avalon Advisors, Chief Investment Strategist at PNC Asset Management. Joining us on the phone from Houston, uh, former, forgive me, um, Chief Investment uh, Strategist at PNC Asset Management. Uh, nice to have you back with us, Bill. So talk to us a little bit about the bounce back that we've seen in the equity markets. I think there's a lot of writings about uh, whether or not we've hit the bottom when it comes to the equity trade. I don't know. How do you see it? Yeah, I don't know if we've hit the bottom yet. I, I would say a lot of our work says, well, we've probably hit the bottom or at least seen the worst if, in fact, we don't end up going into recession. And I think uh, that's the kind of differential you've got to you've got to think about. Um, since we don't think uh, we're going to go into recession, I'll just say anytime this year, uh, I think it's likely that maybe we've uh, seen the worst of it. Again, we can always revisit the bottom, things like that. But I think at least in the short run, you know, we continue to be driven by or markets continue to be driven by the same old things, which is you know how the how people are feeling in any given day about the global economy. Uh, the trade talks, uh, and then Fed policy. So, you know, today it seems a little uplifting on the trade talks. So uh, there you go, voila, uh, you've got a rally. And so, Bill, tell us a little bit more about that no recession in 2019 call for now, because obviously a a lot of people were saying, no, no recession, no recession, no recession, maybe 2020 at the earliest. I feel like that club has gotten a little smaller maybe over the last uh, uh, (laughs) month or so. What continues to give you uh, confidence in that call? Yeah, and I think maybe because we were, I mean, I'll say ahead in the sense that we've been saying for a while, 
most certainly we expect the economy to slow down in mm-hmm. 2019. So we're thinking GDP in the U.S. at about two and a quarter percent. That's still good. That's better yeah. than I'll argue trend growth. But what still gets me there is you still have, even though let's just pick on uh, you know the ISM manufacturing that we got last week and then the services this week. Well, you had those, and particularly the manufacturing, take a significant down move. They're still actually consistent with with you know getting that two and some odd percent growth rate so while it's scary that they kind of had that stair step down um they're still there um you know honestly if you're still a uh you know a uh, yield curve uh, person uh you know the tens minus twos are still holding in and with a positive uh um you know positive slope to them so there, there's a few things uh still out there that i think at least on the whole um you know, you'd say, well, it's really not caving in. And, well, yeah. and I guess I shouldn't really forget the payrolls number from last week. Now, some people say, well, that's a, you know, backward-looking indicator. But I think at least from our work here, we'd say, well, I think, though, wages tend to be a little bit of a forward-looking indicator because people don't usually give you a, a raise if they think their business is caving in. Right. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it felt well, like that jobs number and the reassurance from the Fed really turned everybody around late last week, right? Yeah, and like I said, the Fed is a big part of it. So, you know, that's the other short term. So hopefully, for me anyway, that uh, Chairman Powell doesn't say anything different this week than he said last week because he got it, you know, as close to perfect for us as we could get, I think, last week. So let's just stick with that script, uh, and I think we'll be uh, we'll be okay because you're right. All of a sudden, markets have priced in. Maybe they've overdone it with expecting absolutely no hikes next year. Or I'm sorry, this year. I get confused between 18 and 19 still. Um, but in 2019, but either way, it's come off the worry that they were going to be consistently raising uh, rates in 2019. Bill, let me just break, go back to something you said about wages. But, you know, companies are competing. Fast food companies are competing for workers. A lot of – anytime Jason and I have a conversation with a CEO, I feel like the thing that keeps them up at night or the number one concern and priority is finding workers. So it's safe to say that companies are having to pay up for workers at this point, even if they might have some concerns about the outlook because – if they're trying to meet demand for today, they've got to have those workers to do it. Yes? No? No, true. Um, but I think, you know, I, I guess it tells you, though. They might not build a new factory or they might not, you know, improve an existing factory, but they're going to hire workers and they're going to have to pay up for them right now. And that ultimately, I feel like there's this, this kind of negative loop in that that's going to maybe potentially eat into margins, especially if things start to slow down. It could. I think, like, in terms of. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it is always something you watch where you get, once you get the year over year kind of wage gains around 4%, you start to worry about earnings and we're not there yet. Um, but I think it does go back though, that they're certainly not seeing at least on the whole business evaporate yet, which I think, uh, again, you know, these companies are not that good at forecasting out forward um, in terms of their outlook. It'll be interesting to hear during earnings season what they do, and I'll certainly be listening. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if they really thought things were caving in, they'd say, ah, you know, you know, go on, go somewhere else because uh, uh, we'll be fine because we can, we're going to shrink anyway. So I think it, it is another good reason to, to feel at least, again, that it's slowing but not collapsing. So, Bill, got to ask you one more quick question before we let you go, which has to do with your backyard there. Uh, oil prices, the energy market, you look at it professionally, but I'm sure you hear about it at cocktail parties and, you know, around the uh, proverbial water cooler and 
at Rockets games wherever you hang out uh, <laughs> down there in Houston. How does that play uh, into into the broader trade here? Yeah, it's tough. So, I mean, we, we like energy here. Um, a lot of it just because it was so trashed. Um, but I think the other side of it is there's a good side, you know, like setting uh, Texas and Houston aside for a second and look at the whole economy. Um, usually what you see is when you see a big decline in energy prices, uh, that is a real boost to consumers because they really just right. take that money they would have spent on, say, gasoline and spend it on something else because there's a good number of the people that they spend all of their disposable uh, cash. So I think yeah. it's still a decent story. Well, certainly one we'll continue to watch here in 2019. Bill Stone, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer at Avalon Advisors. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.